Let's do it by first looking to the Lord now in prayer. And Father, what we want to do in the now in this second of the three services is to again focus our attention upon who you are, upon what you've done, understanding the significance of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, you know our needs. You know the struggles we face. See the tears late at night on pillows that nobody else sees. Might be about a relationship gone sour. Might be about a job still to be found. Might be about a health issue that thus far hasn't been answered. Most significantly, it might be someone who doesn't know Jesus. We need to be able to draw encouragement. We need to be able to draw strength now from your word. And this is the right place to go, your word. So, Father, these moments to come are significant. We're not interested in the latest topic. We're interested in the eternal truths. And so we will continue to go verse by verse through what you've penned. So, Father... Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember that day in Edmund Chapel when Howard Hendricks made his way to the in the pulpit to speak, and the students always loved whenever Dr. Hendricks was present to be able to open up God's word and to draw our attention to what God has done. And there was this pivotal time where Dr. Hendricks was talking about the early church, persecution that was being experienced, and what God was doing in the midst of the persecution. And he went on to say, and I've got my notes in front of me, my, isn't it tragic that God allowed this to happen, he said, with a half smirk on his face, really. But then added, you'll notice that in your text. That's the reverse standard version, he said. But then added these words, for you see, this early church was learning the law of spiritual thermodynamics, namely, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. What you're about to see now in this section of the book of Acts is the first wave of persecution that the early church is going to face. And it's not going to come from secularists. It's going to be engineered by religionists, those who have religious authority. Now, what you will find in Christian history is that, generally speaking, you can divide the whole matter of persecution in two main sections. There will be secular persecution that the authorities, the political authorities, put in practice. You see it in North Korea. You see it in China. But there is also a second kind. It's a religious persecution. And you have seen that throughout history as well. You'll see it in the Middle East. 
And what we see here unfolding for us now in the book of Acts is the beginning of persecution as the followers of Jesus Christ are finding that there's a cost, there's a price involved. No cheap grace when Jesus Christ is your Savior, when Jesus Christ is your Lord. So what I want to do now with these 12 verses in front of us is to draw up three significant insights that, that Luke the physician has provided you, provided me, to understand better where is God in the midst of, of opposition in which it seems to be intensifying against God's people. And the first insight comes out of verse 1, down through verse 4, that when opposition to God's work intensifies, we're going to begin now by noticing here the opposing reactions to God's work. And these are going to be polar opposites once again. Now, Peter has got exhibit A of what God can do right before the population in Jerusalem. Peter and this crippled man are, have been put in a precinct just outside of the court of the Gentiles, highly trafficked, a place of commerce, a place of conversation, a place where people will notice people and create dialogue. God is sovereignly now positioned this lame man in that setting who had become very, very much the mainstay in which people had to maneuver around in order to get into the temple precincts, a familiar figure. But that man who was born crippled now has been raised and can walk. Peter immediately takes the contemporary event and ties it to who Christ is and what Christ has done. But now, now he's got the religious authorities, the political authorities worked up. He hasn't even finished what he has to say. You see it in the opening verse. And as they were speaking, they, meaning Peter as well as John, as they were speaking, not after they were speaking, as they were speaking to the people, notice who appears on the scene. It's not the secular authorities at this point. Yeah, there's secular unbelief. There's also religious unbelief. And now the religious authorities appear, the priests, captain of the temple, but mark the next group, it's the Sadducees, the Sadducees. Now, we pointed out in our insert for this morning that the Sadducees were the religious aristocracy within the precincts of Jerusalem. They were the rulers, they were the authority figures, and at the time in which Jesus Christ was sentenced, they were the majority in the sentencing, you see. Not only do we see them in a position of authority, we have to understand a little more about their ties, their connections, and their beliefs. They were deeply connected to Roman politics. They knew that in order to maintain their positions of authority, they had to scratch Rome's back, and Rome in turn would scratch theirs by allowing them to maintain their, their seats. Understand who you're dealing with when you are sharing the gospel. 
But not only were there political ramifications with these people, there were doctrinal ones as well. For you see, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So when somebody comes along now and says Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, that's going to get them moving. They're going to want to squelch that movement. Otherwise, Rome will think that this one born king of the Jews, so they had heard, has created a following, and that's going to create an uproar. And then Rome will come with its political forces, its soldiers, and these Sadducees may very well lose their position of authority within that city. So much was at stake for them, you see, theologically, as well as politically, even economically. So now, here's Peter. He's appealing to the masses. God has positioned him outside the court of the Gentiles. This is a place that's highly trafficked. And these individuals, you're up to verse 2 now, are not merely annoyed. They are greatly annoyed. They are greatly annoyed because they could lose their position of authority. They could also lose their income. And why are they annoyed? Luke and verse 2 gives you two reasons. Number one, they were teaching the people. These were fishermen. They lacked the formal credentials that you would expect of a rabbi. But number two, they were proclaiming Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And while the Jews believed in a general resurrection still to come, the very thought that this one Jesus Christ who had entered into Jerusalem, who had died on that cross, is raised from the dead, this we get the crowd talking, you see. And now we've got exhibit A, and if this man who is crippled from birth, if this man is now standing, how then do you build a bridge from God's power, raising one who could not walk to now walking, to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ, once dead, is now alive? Do you see the connections he's making? Do you see the, now the bridge he's building? Now, likewise, in your conversations, day in, day out, when people are wondering, what's going on in this world, build a bridge. Peter's doing that. He makes his way toward Jesus. More about that bridge in a moment. You're up to verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. So much for due process of law, right? They feel threatened. An example in history a secular political opponent. Julian the Apostate was his nickname. Rome, he was the emperor. Well, he was on a march with his army in a campaign against Persia, modern-day Iran. The year is 363. One of the soldiers in his army said to a Christian who was being abused by the, by the soldiers, well, now, where is your carpenter? Alluding, of course, to Jesus. Where is he now? He asked cynically. Without missing a beat, the response was, he's making a coffin for your emperor, was the reply. Know how to respond quickly. Well, there's the rest of the story. A few months later, Julian, emperor, 
receives this mortal wound in battle, and he realizes his death is at hand, and dips his hand in the blood of his wound, throws the blood towards the heavens, and shouts, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean carpenter. Thou hast conquered. Now, God goes out of his way to show that Jesus Christ is the conqueror of death. As Josh McDowell put it, you can't keep a good man down. And so now, three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. And so what Peter does is takes the raising this one born crippled, who is now walking, and builds a bridge to the one who was put on that cross and dies, and three days later is raised from the dead, and he is getting people to rethink this whole matter of raising, which runs against the thought processes of Sadducees, who wants Jesus still in that grave, and wants Peter and John to simply go away. But you see, God has a way of threatening the authorities of those that simply want to dispose of the notion that Jesus Christ is both Savior and the Lord. Now, what they do at this point is they arrest Peter, they arrest John, and they put him in custody until the next day. But what I want to say is that you can't put the gospel in custody. The word's out. And even though the messenger may be incapacitated or restricted or limited, the message is still available and so here is the opposite reaction to the Sadducees that are noted in verses 1, 2, and 3. Take a look at verse 4, because there you read it. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Stop right there. It's not that they simply heard. What I want to say is they heard the word. Now, the reason we go verse by verse, week by week, is because we want people not merely to hear, we want people to hear the word. Not hear someone speak, we want them to hear the word of God explained and applied. That's why we don't even do topical messages. We do what's called expository messages, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So in a biblically illiterate culture, which typically is typical of a culture becoming increasingly secularized, here is a congregation then that is biblically literate but finds a way of taking timeless truths and communicating in timely ways, which is what Peter's doing now. He takes the timeless truths of the scriptures as he's explaining them, and he applies it in a timely way and gets people to think, well now, if one who was crippled is raised to walk. What about that Jesus who was dead but was raised to live? You see what he's doing? He's contemporizing. As should you, as should I, take the text now and apply. And so what happens? Polar opposite. Think now what Howard Hendricks said, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. Many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men is about, what, five as people were frequenting the area. Now what God is doing at this point is that he's getting people to rethink who has authority. The Sadducees couldn't keep Jesus in that grave. 
The Sadducees could not keep the gospel from spreading. They are limited in their authority. They're dependent upon Rome. But the gospel is dependent upon God, a higher authority. I love this uh, exchange that took place in a classroom. Nancy Pierce, she's written brilliantly about the relationship between Christianity and science. And she talks about a time when she was teaching an ethics class. And during a discussion on the nature of moral responsibility, one student asked, who are we responsible to? After all, the notion of responsibility makes no sense unless there's someone with authority. If there's responsibility, there's got to be a higher authority. The response from one of the students, we're responsible to other people. For example, if you run over a child, you are responsible to the child's parents. But says who? Persisted the first student. Who will hold me accountable to those parents? Another student then jumped in. It's society that has the authority. It's society that we are responsible to. Society sets the laws that we follow. It holds us accountable. It's society that has the authority. But then the first student asked, but who gives society that right? Who has the authority? You see where this goes? Now, what Nancy Piercy goes on to say is that the answer lurking in many of the students' minds was that our ultimate authority, our ultimate responsibility is to God. Any other authority can be challenged. And that's what's happening right here. And so the Sanhedrin wants authority, but they're dependent upon Rome. Here is Peter, who's used by God, an instrument of grace, to raise this lame man to walk, and he's appealing to a higher authority the name above all names that we have sung about. So not here then is the tension point. There are polar opposites. You've got on one hand those that are resisting God's authority and wanting to maintain their own in verses 1 through 3. On the other hand, there are those who are submitting to God's authority and recognize Jesus Christ as the ultimate authority. They are found in verse 4, polar opposites. And now look at your culture, look at society, look at America today. What I would say is that any argument, including the matter of abortion and so on, is ultimately the question of authority. It begs the question, says who? Who says the one in the womb is a child? What you and I have to do then is to realize that the big issues that people face are ultimately the issues of authority. And whoever has the authority, it's to that person and that we submit in terms of our responsibility. And the Sanhedrin didn't want to hear that one bit. But what do you do with Exhibit A? When here's this man who is standing there, and he was previously crippled, and while they tried to keep Jesus Christ in the grave three days later, he's raised from the dead, what do you do with Exhibit A? This is getting the people talking. And Peter's got him talking. Even though he's incarcerated, he's still having impact. And even though you might be restricted, even though you might be limited, you're having impact. Take the exhibit A's of life and point people towards Jesus. And now, 
Now you're ready for your second insight. And it comes, you see, beginning in verse 5 down to verse 7. The second of all, when opposition to God's work intensifies, not only the opposing reaction to God's work, but second of all, the critical question about God's work. And watch the questions as they begin to unfold. It's the next day. Next day. Rulers, elders, scribes. They gather in Jerusalem. And with Annas, the high priest. Annas, well, he's kind of like the patriarch of the priests. But now the pivotal figure, and you can read about him in Jesus' trials, Caiaphas. So was John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family, they've gathered together. Zero in now on Caiaphas. He was at the forefront of Jesus Christ's arrest. He was carefully aligned then with the real Roman authorities to make sure everything worked. Now, when you are touring Jerusalem, you're going to reach a point when you get to the house of Caiaphas. Look what shows up on the screen, if you would, please. There is the road that leads to Caiaphas's house, you see. And as you're making your way to Caiaphas's house, look what comes next. There's Caiaphas' house. Now, on October 27th of 2018, that's where I stood, one year ago. So this got me thinking. Okay, I'm standing there in front of Caiaphas' house, and now, typically, your tour guide will pause. If we were together, I'd give a teaching at this point on Caiaphas' involvement, you see, in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and how it continued on in the whole matter of the early church. People, this is where, in this courtyard, Peter denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. The name Caiaphas and the setting of Caiaphas' house would bring back terrible memories for Peter. Now, do you see that setting where there is this seems like a walkway off to your left? That is where Jesus Christ would have been walked in his, as he was held in custody in his hearings. And it's where the exchange of the glances occurred between Jesus and Peter. As Jesus would have looked down, Peter would have looked up after the cock had crowed three times, and then Peter wept. What I want to say now is that most likely where Peter and John were held overnight was what we'll call the basement of Caiaphas' house. And if I were to take you down the steps into the lower level, we would see stocks where prisoners were held captive. Still there. Now, Peter, the next day, is brought out of custody he is now standing before Caiaphas, you see, and the other religious authorities of that time period. You know what I love now? God is the God of second chances. Just as he gave Jesus, gave Peter, rather, a second chance to be able to be reinstituted as an apostle when Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
Now, likewise, what God in his sovereign purposes does, he leads Peter right back into the scene in which Peter denied Jesus Christ. And now Peter is going to have to affirm Jesus Christ. Do you see the power in all of this? Now, God has a way, then, of taking you back to your roots, taking you back to your studies, taking you back to the place where previously you departed from him and giving you a new opportunity to set things right and to align yourself publicly with what you know privately, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So now, back to the text. There's Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. Now you're up to verse 7. And in verse 7, when they had set them, Peter and John, in their midst. And remember how timid Peter was when that slave girl, that servant girl, wanted to know if Peter was with Jesus and he denied him. Now he's dealing with higher authorities in Jerusalem. And they want to know if he's aligned with Jesus. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, God has a way of taking the people who pose questions and giving you tremendous opportunities when they're grappling with their current situations to provide ultimate answers. They want to know something about the name. By what name? There was a wealthy farmer in Ohio. Approached a young man named Jamie, asked him, who was asking for a job, and what Taylor hired him, allowed Jamie to sleep in the barn. Well, over the coming weeks and months, Jamie, he showed himself to be a hard worker, valuable employee, so much so he was given more and more and more responsibility. But now, you got to understand the time period. One day, Jamie came to Taylor and announced that he and the wealthy man's daughter had fallen in love. And the young worker asked Taylor for his daughter's hand in marriage. And Taylor was angry and said, I've treated you well. This is how you repay me. You don't deserve any of my good treatment. Get your things and go. And so Jamie packed his things, left. Taylor never heard from him again, so he thought. Years later, Taylor was cleaning out the barn. He came to an area where Jamie used to sleep. And there, when the straw was swept away, he was startled to find the place where Jamie had carved his name in the wood. And it read, James A. Garfield. People, James A. Garfield became president of the United States. And this farmer never took time to truly examine the essence of who this man is, was. Now, what we have to do is to get people to truly grapple with the essence of the name of Jesus Christ, his claims, his nature, his work. 
because people are still dealing with the says who questions of life, but they can't figure out the exhibit A's that keep being thrust their way. And you've got to find a way to exhibit A and get them to the cross and from the cross to the empty tomb. And as you do so, what you are doing is recognizing, number one, there's going to be opposing reactions to God's work expected in America. There's going to be polarization. Number two, ponder the critical questions about God's work. What do you do with what you're observing? But now you're on then. You're on to it. The third insight that unfolds from these verses rather naturally, that when opposition to God's work intensifies, it has, it will. Well, then note thirdly, the superior name in God's work. And here we unpack it, beginning in verse 8. By what name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, so the people and elders. He, he's respectful. As should you, as should I, when we're talking to others. He's acknowledging them. He's acknowledging, yeah, they've got authority, but it's delegated, not absolute. Rulers of the people and the elders, and now I can almost, you know Peter, and you know that he's got a way of a smile curling up on the side of his face when he's about to pull the rug out under somebody's feet. Here it happens. Because in verse 9, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed, is that why I'm being held without due process overnight? Because of a good deed? And this man's walking. He was crippled. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done by a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you. Well, now what fascinates us is that he goes out of his way to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Because as Jesus was making, inching his way, you see, toward Jerusalem to the point in which he would be put on trial, to the point in time where he then would be sentenced to death. There was a man by the name of Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, beginning, you see, in the verses of 46, he was a blind beggar sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. How did he know? Because he had been told by those around him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. When people passed by the cross, they got to a place where they would look up at an inscription in John 19, 19, Pilate wrote the inscription, Sadducees were in on it, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
Now, when you get to Israel, if you haven't done it yet, you're going to go into Nazareth, you see, and what struck me is that there are Arabs everywhere. In fact, it's been dubbed the Arab capital of Israel. But what also interests me is that it's the most concentrated area of Christians in Israel at this time. Now, he goes out of his way to identify him. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever. For endless days we'll sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord, our God. Hillsong worship, you see. Well, no. What Peter does is that he pulls together responsibility with authority. Responsibility? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Authority? Whom God raised from the dead. As he probably has his arm around this beggar at this point. And I can still, Peter, you know, you know Peter. He's got this half smile on his face. He's saying, if God can raise a lame man to walk, that same dunamis, that same power, can raise the second member of the Trinity from the grave and produce life. Now, Peter probably took his arm off at this point because he's got to wave his finger as he points to the crowd and he says, this Jesus, this Jesus, he was just got done talking about this man by this man standing before you well. But you see how he builds a bridge? Are you a bridge builder? Do you realize that Caiaphas's house had a bridge for the high priest to walk to get to the temple? Now, you're building a bridge here. So this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And Peter, who had been incarcerated the night before, was probably meditating on Psalm 118, a great messianic psalm, where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, not the Sadducees. It's marvelous in our eyes. And then we go on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Peter is all about now the name of the Lord. As Chris Tomlin would put it, Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. And now he delivers the goods. You're up to verse 12. Powerful. Makes you stop and think. And there is salvation. Notice how it begins and then notice how it ends. There is salvation. Now notice the first exclusive. In no one else. 
Notice the second exclusive. There is no other name under heaven given among men. And then he comes full circle. He began with salvation. He ends with salvation by which we must be saved. What makes this name supreme? Well, first of all, the name of Jesus was given from heaven. An angel gave the name to Jesus' mother, Mary. You can conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Angel comes to Joseph. Joseph, foster father of Jesus. Joseph, son of David, fear not, he would go on to say. And then he speaks of Mary, and she shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It's the name given from heaven. So this supreme name, notice where it come, came from. But furthermore, notice where this name returns to. Because what the Apostle Paul would go on to say is simply this. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is to the glory of God the Father. And now you've got the name given from heaven to earth, and now from earth he returns to heaven, and the Sadducees are having to figure out what do I do with a lame man who now walks and a Peter who is standing and making a connection to one who had died, and now Peter is saying three days later is raised from the dead. And I was standing at the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum. It was discovered in 1799 by Napoleon's troops. What stands out is that the scholars that began to examine this thing, they knew Greek, so they were able to use the stone to unlock the mysteries of the ancient Egyptian language for the first time, the Rosetta Stone. And as they began to unlock it, they were able to do so because they recognized, they recognized a name at the very top of the stone. The name of the king supplied the key in this case to interpret what the stone meant. Jesus, it's his name that helps us to understand and to interpret why things are and where things are and where everything's going. Jesus, at your name, the mountains shake and crumble. At your name, the oceans roar and tumble. At your name, angels will bow, the earth will rejoice, your people cry out, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name, filling up the skies with endless praise, endless praise, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, O Lord, writes Phil Wickham, as we have sung and bring glory to his name, we stand together. And so, Father... Hallowed be thy name. We give you praise, we give you thanks, because the name of Jesus was given by you to Jesus. And then that name returned to heaven, and someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're giving you praise now, Father.
our understanding of that name will never be the same again. God is our salvation. Jesus is our Lord. And for this we give you the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.